This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Listen to industry experts, authors, and executives that advocate powerful retros, share their stories and insights on how to reflect, adjust, and become more effective. Have you ever experienced people in your retrospective talking past or over each other? In this episode, we'll tackle that with Karen Gibnick. She's been using a tool from the Imago Technique for several years uh, to improve group communication. She's a brilliant facilitator. We met at an open space conference in Oregon where she did an engaging session about this topic, and she'll explain us how to run that activity with our groups. Enjoy the show. But remember, the audio in this is pretty bad. My audio is pretty bad. Uh, Karen's audio is good, but mine, because I'm moving and I had like to use a, a different microphone, it's it's bad again. So apologies for that. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Karen. And um, Karen, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us about the work you're currently doing and what makes you passionate about it? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, So I'm Karen Gimnig, and I'm a professional facilitator and consultant, and I work with groups of people, um, particularly groups of people who are trying to do things together. So agile teams being in that list. Um, I also work with groups of people who are living together or um, working together in nonprofit type environments, volunteer groups, that kind of thing. Um, And what they all have in common is that they're trying to function as a a group together. Um, And my particular interest is in helping them do that in a way that's relational and that because it's relational is is more effective. So it should feel good, um, but it should also be really productive in terms of helping the group meet their goals. So in the case of the agile teams that are your audience, they should be getting a lot more done because they are communicating better because they're working through their conflict and and getting to productive places out of it. And I'm passionate about it because for me, there's a whole element here of things that really we've dropped from our culture that are pretty essential to making us happy and healthy as human beings. And, And the skills that we need we tend to sort of go along through our individualized lives, particularly here in the U.S., where you know everybody's got their own space and their own house, and it's what they can do by themselves. That's what's the you know the goal, um, and they don't notice what's missing. But you get into a group. Um, also happens if you get into a marriage or other kinds of partnerships. But you start hanging out with other humans, and and all of a sudden it becomes clear that there are some pieces missing. And as we develop those. I think of them as sort of finding lost parts of self and we, we become much better at all kinds of things. So we, you know, if we're working on an agile team and we get better at communication, well, we now take that communication home to our families, to our children, and they learn those skills from us and take them into their schools. And eventually one might wish they find their way into politics and they find their way into world leaders and they find their way into all sorts of other places where suddenly we discover that as human beings, we are interconnected. And when we form strong, meaningful connections, all of us are better and we make better decisions for ourselves, for our planet, for our cities, for our towns. 
at all sorts of levels. So I, I focus on particular groups that I'm working with and I'm passionate because I think it changes the world. And uh, I guess, where, where do you fit in into the picture as a, as a facilitator? So it varies depending on the group. Um, so sometimes I just come in and literally facilitate a meeting. So I'm working with a group this next week that has a, a really big meeting to do. They're suddenly doing it on Zoom because they can't be together in person and they have a whole lot of decisions to make. They're a consensus group, so they're going to have to come to agreement about things. And um, and my job is is literally to figure out who's going to talk when and what mechanisms are we going to use and are we going to use some Google Docs or you know how are we going to communicate and and get things through um, in that kind of meeting setup. So that's one level where I work. Um, you mentioned I also, consensus group, and I want to maybe can you elaborate that mm, for the audience? Yeah. So consensus is the space where we look for the thing that works for everyone. And I, I, a lot of people think it means that everyone agrees. And I don't like that word for consensus because it doesn't mean necessarily that we all think that the same, have the same idea about what is the best idea, but we do all get to a place where we can support the same idea. Um, I, I say that in majority vote situations, you start with two ideas and you end up with one of them and a bunch of winners and a bunch of losers. And, and neither the winners nor the losers feel very good about that usually. Um, when you use consensus and you start with the same two ideas, what you end up with is almost always a third idea, something that wasn't there to begin with and a whole group of people who can support that new thing. Um, and, and even if they don't think it's the very best thing, there's usually agreement that that third thing is better than either of the original two. Um, so that, that's how consensus works when it works well. Um, there are, a, like most systems, there are lots of ways it can go wrong. And I think this is someplace where I see it with Agile and I see it with other systems that are structures that are really designed for people to work well together. When they fail, in my experience and sort of my belief system, they almost always fail because the underlying relational skills aren't there. And that's the sort of next piece of what I do with groups is, is really train them in communication skills, conflict work skills, what I think of as sort of the relational foundation skills that allow those other systems that they're using to work well um, so that they can give good feedback, which of course is a key thing that you talk about, I know with your retrospectives, that we can be honest and upfront and authentic with each other in ways that aren't hurtful, right? In ways that don't add resentments or create more conflict, but that really are productive and that promote trust and a sense of safety with one another. Um, so there's layers of this. Some of it, good facilitation helps with that a lot. And having a group that's skilled with these things and, and literally has built the part of the brain that does that well um, makes a huge difference as well. So I do a lot of training in that sense. Nice. And I'm going to come back to that, that part of the brain. Um, the, another question that I wanted to ask you since we're kind of like uh, at the almost start, uh, how did you get interested in facilitation? What sparked it? You know, it was a slow process for me. Um, 
I mean, some of it is I've just sort of always been a natural leader, so I find myself running meetings pretty often. That's always been true. Um, but as I got more and more interested in um, probably more than anything else, I was homeschooling my kids and looking for a homeschool group of people to hang out with. And it wasn't at all hard to find a place where uh, you could sign up for classes or you could pay some money. But I found it pretty difficult, actually, to find a group where people really connected, where, you know, people felt like friends. Um, and I started getting real interested in researching what are the things that create groups where people actually feel connected, where people feel like they're in relationship, where they have a sense of community with each other. And it's more than just we all show up in the same place. It's we actually engage with one another in an intentional kind of way. Um, and one of the things I came to very quickly was consensus groups that that choosing to make decisions in this interrelated way, in a way that forces us to listen to each other and that very intentionally takes time to hear the perspectives and um, understand where other people are coming from tends to yield good relationships. And at the same time, I was living in a community that functioned by consensus that wasn't yielding particularly good relationships and realized that it was because the facilitation of the meetings wasn't wasn't strong. And so it it turns out, in my opinion, that you need both a, a structure that that guides you or sets you up for um, collaborative workspaces and the facilitation and um, relationship skills, communication skills that allow that to work. Um, so that's kind of where I started. And the as my kids grew up and needed me less and I was looking to get back into the workplace, I got pretty excited about um, this facilitation thing is something I can do. And I studied more and more and I did my Imago training and I studied various different pieces in different ways. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I got here. And uh, you mentioned earlier, train that the part of the brain to let the group function together. Can you elaborate that? Yeah, I mean, I think we have a lot more to learn about neurology and all this stuff. Um, and they keep sort of changing up their models. But um, my understanding is that when they study the brain, what they find is that, you know, we know different parts of the brain do different things. And if you put some sensors on, an, on a brain, you know, like an MRI type machine, and you ask somebody, hey, listen to this thing. Turns out the part of the brain that lights up is the part that looks for an answer. And this is because in our mainstream culture, we actually aren't trained to listen and take in information. We're trained to listen and come up with an appropriate response. And so that's what we do. And, and funnily enough, we end up not feeling very well heard by one another <laughs> because, because actually really hearing each other and really being present with each other isn't what we've been taught to do. Um, and so with the Imago relationships frame um, that was really launched with a book by Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt called Getting the Love You Want, um, they were really looking at couples relationships. What we find is that that work transfers right over into groups and organizations. Um, but what they do is ask people when you're listening to listen to mirror back. So if, if someone's speaking, then when they're finished, you're going to say to them, well, what I heard you say is, 
and then check in, did I get that? Did I get you? Um, and is there more with this invitational piece? And, and what the science tells us is that when we practice that, what I heard you say is mirroring, it's also called active listening. It comes under a lot of different names and it's probably part of any communication method you're gonna study. Um, it's not uniquely Imago. Um, but when you do that, the MRI tells us that a whole different part of the brain lights up and it's the part of the brain that is good at recording information. So if you actually wanna take in and understand somebody else's perspective, you need the part of the brain that takes in information to be active and it rarely is in regular conversation. And so we know that with neurons, it's use it or lose it. The more that you use a particular part of the brain, the stronger it gets, the more skilled it gets, the better you get at that thing. So that, you know, that's if you're learning music or a second language or any of those things, you have to practice and practice. And I think listening is the same, that getting really good at taking in information as we practice that using a structure like the Imago Dialogue structure, we get better and better at it. And so it's helpful both in that the, the structure does a lot of things. It slows us down and helps us get really present with each other. Um, structure creates safety. So if you don't have a lot of trust in your group, using structure will build up that trust and sense of safety. So there's lots of reasons to use the structure. And the bonus reason is that when you use the structure, you're actually training your brain so that even when you're not using the structure, you are recording information and listening better than you than you normally probably would in day-to-day -day life nice and the structure can you uh can you go through it again is it like the yeah yeah so there, there's a number of steps i'm going to just talk through the first three probably for the the scope of what we're doing today and then there's there's more we could get to um but the the first part is um, to, to mirror back, so the prompt we use for that is what I heard you say is, um, and then you repeat back what that person said. I encourage folks to repeat it back as close to word for word as they can, um, because that's a useful skill. That's, that's really stretching that brain um, to be able to do it. And then once you can, you can decide whether you always want to. Um, but I find that for most folks, that's a really worthwhile exercise. And it's the most reliable for creating stress, trust and safety. When you start interpreting and, you know, what I heard you say is, and I'm going to put it in my own words, there can be a sense of, well, I can say it better than you can, or, um, or just missing the, the important pieces. There's something really, really respectful about giving it back in their own words. Um, so it's not, the only way by any means, but I do think it's the, the safest and um, it's the one I use most often and I recommend getting good at that skill. So that's the first piece is what I've heard you say is. And then you wanna check. So first piece is mirror, second piece is check. And the prompt for that is, did I get you? Um, and the thing I wanna point out here is that I didn't ask if I got it right, because in fact, we don't care whether I was right. We care whether I connected with you and took in what it was you were trying to tell me. And so if I, you know, if I got the words wrong, because that part of my brain isn't so good yet, or, or just because that's not something I'm great at, but I still totally got you, mission accomplished. Sometimes you'll find, like, I'll use exactly the words they used, and they'll say, 
Yeah, that's what I said. But can I try again? Because that doesn't like that. That isn't what I meant, or that isn't doesn't feel true to me. That doesn't feel right to me. Um, and so that's why that prompt. Did I get you? It's not about whether I was successful in recreating all the words. It's about did we connect? Did did I hear who you are? Did I hear what you have to offer to this? Um, so that's the check piece, and the third piece which I think is fairly unique to Imago, is what we call the invitation. And it's, is there more? And that's the piece where I find that you get things that you would never otherwise hear. And sometimes you get things that they didn't know they had to say. Um, sometimes the solution to the problem that you struggle and struggle and struggle with as a team will show up, is there more? Um, because it's it's a deepening prompt. It's a it's a space of, okay, so you've told me the first thing. You've probably told me the safe thing. You've told me the thing I expected to hear or that you thought was safe to say or that is socially acceptable or um, or that feels um, within our frame somehow. Is there more is where you're gonna get that out of the box thing, that thing that they, they sort of thought about, but they didn't quite let it sit, or it wasn't quite as safe to say. It's a little more vulnerable. Um, you know, it depends on the topic, obviously. But I find that in that, is there more? Um, you get things that nobody knew they needed to say. And that can be really profound and powerful. It's also just this incredibly generous invitation. Right. It's this opportunity. Like, when was the last time you talked and somebody really, really heard you? And then they said, Do you have more about that? Is there, wait, it just feels so good to have somebody express that kind of interest. Um, that I think it, it also builds the relationship and again, that sense of trust and respect. So that's really the three pieces of, of what I think of as the mirroring process. Um, the full Imago dialogue has a couple more pieces that go way more into depth. Um, but I think that's a, a good start and great brain training to just get with those three, the mirror check and invite. I remember we did like a, like an activity at the open space where we met and uh, this was one of them. And um, can you, can you describe that activity to the, to the listeners so that they can maybe practice? Uh, and I think it, it resonated with me because I asked you like, well, where can I use this in a retrospective or in a meeting? And I think you suggested something like, well, at the beginning, you could have the group practice this uh, yeah. mirroring back as, a, yeah. as an exercise, uh, like a time box exercise. And um, can you like give the, uh, the description of how uh, like a group might be able to, 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 to simulate this or to, to run this? Sure. Yeah, so I love it as a meeting starter. So I think for a retrospective, there are a lot of things that would happen, I think, if you start with this exercise. Um, one of the reasons to do it is that it turns on the listening part of the brain. So you actually um, activate that. And I believe, I can't point to science that backs it up, but it's been my experience that when you start with some practice in mirroring, even though you're not going to do any more mirroring the rest of the meeting necessarily, you have activated the part of the brain that takes in information. So the likelihood that the group will actually hear each other and everything else that you do goes up, in my opinion. 
I also think it increases safety in the room. And retrospectives are fundamentally, I think, vulnerable places. Because if a retrospective works well, it's because you're giving feedback to each other. And hopefully, you're saying to each other, here's some stuff that we didn't do too well, or here's something that you did that didn't work well for me. And hopefully, you, you've got language to do that in a way that's respectful and kind and all of that. But the reality is, in our culture, we don't like to tell people things that they did wrong or that we didn't like that they did or right that feedback piece is not something we're good at so if you can do something at the beginning of a retrospective that increases the sense of safety in a room um that is likely to yield more effective feedback more authentic feedback and the things that will actually make a difference things that might otherwise not get said because people don't feel safe enough to say them um, so I think that this exercise does that better than anything else that I know. And so it's well worth the time that it takes at the front end. Um, and you can make this as long or as short as you want, but, um, having given sort of the reasons to do it, um, the, the setup is that you ask people to pair off and I've had people say, well, but we're trying to work as a group. Why would we go pair off if we want to be a whole cohesive group? And all I can tell you is that every time I've done it, when people come back from their pairs, the whole group feels more connected and cohesive. Um, there is something about being deeply heard by one other person in the group that makes that whole group feel safer and makes us more willing to be vulnerable in the whole group. So pair off and you can assign pairs or you can randomly assign pairs. I, you know, I've had people pair off by you know, find, find somebody whose thumb looks the most like yours or find somebody whose birth date is closest to yours in the year. So you can make it random like that, or you can just have somebody, you could say, you know, pair with the person you've spent the least time with in this last sprint. Um, maybe that's a way. So it doesn't really matter how. Um, you, you probably, ideally, you don't want to force anybody to pair with somebody they really can't stand. That's, you know, I don't like to force people into things they're not comfortable with. Usually, if that's happening, you've got other issues on your team, right? <laughs> there you go. Um, so pair off and you want to sit face to face with each other as close as you are comfortable. So knee to knee and, you know, different people have different comfort levels. So you don't have to be, you know, touching each other or right on top of each other. But as close as you're comfortable, proximity does create a sense of connection. Um, and then you're going to use some prompts and so one person's going to send they're going to talk and the other one's going to receive so the receiver's going to do those that mirror check invite thing that we just talked about um and so an example of prompts and you can customize these for what's going on in your team or what the re retrospective is is about but um a set of four that i think works pretty well for a retrospective might be um something that went great for me this last sprint would be the first one. And with prompts, I try to use what we call sentence stems. So the beginnings of a sentence rather than a question, we think that works better. So the first one might be something that was great for me in this sprint. A second one might be something that was really hard for me in this sprint. And the second two I like to use to connect the two people. Um, so the third prompt might be something I think we have in common. And a fourth prompt that I like is something I appreciate about you. 
And so the exercises for each of those prompts, um, the sender is going to speak it. The receiver is going to receive it with that mirror check invite. So what I heard you say is that something that was great for you in the sprint was that um, you had some really awesome conversations with your teammates. And then they're going to check, did I get you? And then they're going to say, is there more? And the person might say, well, yeah. And I, I really felt like we got some things done that I wasn't expecting to get done. And that mattered to me because whatever that is. And then there'll be the next prompt mirror check invite, next prompt mirror check invite. So you've done all four prompts, then switch. And the other person sends, other person receives um, so that each, each of them has had a chance to share. And that for those prompts might take about 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how chatty your team is. Um, and you can time box that so they know and it's sort of 10 minutes for the first send and 10 minutes for the second. If you don't have 20 minutes, that doesn't feel good to spend that much time out of your retrospective time. You can do it in 10 and just don't use as many prompts. Um, and, and you may have a team that can do that many prompts in 10, um, just depending on how, how conversational folks are. So that's sort of the overview. And, and I adapt that in all kinds of ways, depending on the tone I'm trying to set in the meeting or what's going on. I've done, I've done it to be an hour long. I've done it to be five minutes long, just depending on what prompts you set. And um, one thing I remember you mentioned is uh, to, to ask permission to mirror. Um, mm. Do I recall that correctly? And funnily enough, after, after we met, uh, I was with a client that hated mirroring. He couldn't stand it. Um, to which I said, well, yes, did, did the person check in with you? Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? And uh, is it recommended to, and how do we tackle that? So, yeah, so I use the word contracting and I realize in the business world that has other meanings, but in the psychology world, contracting is about getting permission from the person you're with to do the thing you want to do. Um, and that can be, you know, in our harassment concerned world, it can be about touching, you know, is it okay if I touch your shoulder? Um, but it can also be about how we are relationally. So, you know, if we're doing this exercise, you know, you can check with the group. I want to try this new exercise. I heard it on this retrospective podcast. I thought we'd try it out. Is everybody okay with that? That would be a way to be contracting. Um, if you're using this method in a one-on-one -on -one meeting in whatever way, you certainly can say, you know, I, I'd like to use this sort of formal listening process that helps me, you know, really take in what you're saying. Would it be okay if I mirrored you? Or, you know, is it okay if I use this process? With mirroring, you can sneak it in in some ways. And I, if you're feeling sneaky, then it's probably not a good idea. But it's certainly something that as I have learned to do it, it's just sort of become part of my natural speech pattern. So I wouldn't say I always get permission. Um, but certainly if somebody feels like I'm going to put, if they're going to feel like I've put them in a structure, then I want them to know that that was intentional and that I have their consent to do that. Um, on the other hand, if I'm just in a conversation with you and I hold on, let me make sure I'm getting you. What I think I heard you say is, <laughs> did I get that? People don't usually push back against that. Um, some will if they feel like they're being managed. So what I heard you say is don't you don't always ask permission. Did I get you? 
did. You did. But I do always ask permission if I feel like there's resistance or if I think if I'm not clear, you know, if I'm uncertain about whether they're going to be comfortable, then I do. And and that contracting piece is it is again a ton of respect and it gives the listener a sense of agency or the person I'm working with a sense of agency. So they feel safe because they have the opportunity to say, no, I don't want to do that. They almost always do. I mean, they almost always say it's fine. But if they don't, then I have to be prepared to respect that. And and hopefully I have another trick up my sleeve, <laughs> depending on what the situation is. What uh, what do you recommend? Again, people that uh, that are that are remote, maybe forced to be remote. How can they practice this in a remote setting? Um, so it works plenty well on Zoom calls and the like. Um, so if you are, you know, Zoom has become kind of the industry standard, I think, for for remote work. And they have what's called breakout rooms. So if you're doing your retrospective by remote, and I imagine other technologies also have that, but you can pair people off um, so that they can go and do a, an activity like that. Um, but yeah, pretty it transfers incredibly well. I also use the mirroring just as a facilitation technique. So if I'm facilitating, I often will mirror back what I've heard people say for all kinds of reasons, um, sometimes for clarity, sometimes to slow them down. They're talking on and on and on. And I'll say, hold on, let me get that much. But I think I'm hearing you say is, and I might do more of a summary mirror. So I use it a lot in those ways. And again, I use it on Zoom calls every bit as much as I do in person. Awesome. Uh, any trick, any uh, suggestion on how to gain attention? So if say that there's like people are all remote and you want to do that, and how do you how do you manage to get their attention so that you can apply that? You know, I don't. I usually find that getting people's attention on the remote calls is easier than when they're all in the same room. <laughs> people are a little more behaved, I think. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I have any particular secrets for that. Usually, I just sort of start talking, and people people are ready. But um, you know, any of the tricks that you'd use anywhere else? Once I was in this meeting, and there was like I was remote, and then there was like a group in the room, and so there wasn't just like a lot of like people. So it wasn't like one remote all remote. And I, I, at one point I gave up. I was like, this is just not yeah. working. Like these people in the room, those three or four people, individuals in the room, they were just like talking over each other. And I'm like, just like this picture right. in the window. And I, I tried to tell them maybe like we should postpone this. I should come there or you come here. But uh, they wanted to make it happen. And uh, uh, to me, that was uh, yeah, not ideal. And they agreed. <laughs> it's funny. In the, end, yeah, like, I, I, in the end, I said, this is not how we run meetings. This is very dysfunctional. We got to do it differently. And, right. Uh, when I yeah. was, uh, and then I went in and the, the, one of the guys that were talking over each other gave me a hug at the end. Um, so Aww. I think, yeah, it's just like, it's just, just really hard. Like when everyone, I think one, one remote or remote is really, is that the situations you find yourself in usually? Yeah. I, you know, my favorite is all in person. My next favorite is all remote. And I actually think all remote works better than I would have guessed, actually. I, I spend most of my time that way. So I guess I'm used to it now. Um, and, and it can be done to be partly in-person and partly remote, but for sure it's the hardest. And I think doing it well requires some pretty significant investment of resources. Um, you absolutely need somebody who is tracking the people who are on the remote screen um, you need to pay pretty good attention to your auto audio equipment. 
um, that that all the speakers in the room can be heard. That's not so bad if it's maybe three people in a room together, but if you've got a group of 20 and then you've got three or four that are, are remote, um, you'll want either some kind of special microphones or that the audio is way more complicated than you might think to make that work well. And then you need facilitation that ideally the facilitator would be in the group that's in the room. I think I, I have not attempted to facilitate more than a pair. I, I have facilitated a pair when I wasn't in the room and they were, and that's fine. I just set them up and that works fine. Um, but to, to have a whole group that's in a room together and to be remote, it's tough. But you for sure would want somebody who's particularly paying attention to the remote folks so that they get heard. And a facilitator who's tracking the balance of what I think of as power dynamics, that's sort of a heavy word, people don't love it, but um, but there there is the people who are together in a room are gonna have a way more connection with each other than the ones who don't. So you've gotta make sure to kind of elevate those remote voices to balance that. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a tough situation. Uh, is there anything that, that we missed around the Imago technique that you wanna uh, share before we move on to the last questions? think so mostly I mean there's more right like this is this is the beginning just overview so there's lots more depth um and it's mostly if you go looking at Imago stuff you're going to find things related to the couple's work because that's what it's been the most of um and I'm really excited to find how thoroughly it applies and how effectively it applies in groups so it is something you can play with and see where it goes for you and and look me up if you want more or or, or, or if it's not working the way you thought it would, <laughs> I always love to hear from people. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna share your your details as well before before we log off. Uh, so the last I have three questions that I ask all the guests. Um, so the first one is, uh, what is a book that you are reading or that maybe you just finished reading that you want to share with the audience? I have been reading Together Resilient um, by Jana Ludwig in part because she and I are writing the sequel together, so that's kind of exciting. Um, but it's a book about um, working in community and how impactful that can be for the climate crisis that we're in. Um, and can you tell us like uh, an activity or like a facilitation technique that has worked uh, well for you and uh, maybe some context uh, where that activity worked well? Well, that, in a way, that's what we've been talking about is the, the mirroring piece. Um, another one that I like a lot are spectrums. Um, where you get sort of alternate viewpoints, like where do we want to go with this? And, or how are we feeling about it? How do we feel like it did, but get people out of their chairs. So you say, you know, for example, um, you know, how successful was this sprint? And at that side of the room is not at all successful. And that side of the room is over the top, amazingly successful. Everybody stand on that line where where you think we are and you can use it for all kinds of things you get a lot of feedback really quickly and i always like to get people out of their chairs periodically and and use different parts of the brain and different ways of inter interacting so um so yeah it's sort of the opposite so the mirroring is all words and it's all about the language and the words um and spectrums are exactly the opposite there's you can you can then talk about it and have words but the initial is is just get up and move your body which i always think is nice uh and final one what is your favorite food favorite food oh depends probably on the context but you can never go wrong with ice cream 
Um, is there anything that we missed, any project in the pipeline for you? Uh, you mentioned doing more remote work given the, uh, the virus that is going around. Yeah, I definitely am doing plenty of remote work. And, you know, in a way it's kind of exciting for me because um, it, it, I, it can be challenging to come in and help groups facilitate because I'm not in the place where they are, but now everybody's doing everything remotely so I can jump into any meeting and help out. Um, so that's kind of fun. Um, my other big project in the pipeline is this book that Yana and I are working on that we think will come out this summer called the uh, Cooperative Culture Handbook. Um, and it will be facilitation techniques and methods and ways to work with groups around having this cooperative culture that really fosters the sort of psychological safety and teamwork things that are so essential for agile teams. So pretty excited about that. How can the listeners find you? Uh, so I, I'm, I guess it's old fashioned these days to be email, but um, my last name, gimnig at gmail.com is a great way to find me. Um, and also my website is karengimnig.net. Our guests share lots of insights and ideas. Are you going to tweak anything in your next retrospective based on what you've heard today? Tell us on Twitter with hashtag this is retrospective facilitation or leave us a comment on this is retrospective facilitation.com i've opened up a slack channel so if you're locked in and want to bounce ideas off other facilitators about retrospective designs or just want to share some stories you can head to this is retrospective facilitation.com slash slack everyone is welcome you can find all the links to contact karen and the show notes at thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash e20. Thank you for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. Till next time.